You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, you guys. Welcome to the Spring Midtown. We're happy to have you here if you're new. We're also happy to have you here if you're not new. Thanks for choosing uh, to spend your Sunday morning with us. Um, and many of you already know this about me. Um, if you've talked with me for, for any duration of time, I am a huge sports fan. I love watching and playing all sports. Spike ball, ultimate frisbee, baseball, basketball, football. Put me in, coach. I'm ready. Like I, That's always been my personality. Uh, and, and while I try to play as many of those as I can, uh, the one that's been close to my heart since I was little, since like t-ball, was baseball. Uh, baseball was the game I played most of my life growing up. Something about the thinking and the physical aspect, it's, it's got both in it throughout, and I've always enjoyed it. And there's this interesting thing that happens in baseball games before the game actually starts. Uh, it's similar to layup lines or shoot around in basketball, it's sort of a warm up. In baseball, you call it infield, outfield. Uh, and basically how it works, every player runs to their position. Uh, they'll get a couple warm-up hits to them. Uh, and it's a good way to feel out how the, the field is playing and, and how the sun is beating down and, and just kind of get a good feel for, for the game moving forward. Uh, and uh, there's also this weird thing, and this is what makes infield, out, outfield unique from other sports. Uh, there's this weird like intimidation exchange that goes on during the, the infield outfield. So only one team can be on the field to warm up, right? So the other team is usually in their dugout on, on their side of, of the field. And that team almost always will come up to the fence of the dugout and lean over and watch intently the team in the field. And so for them, they're wanting to put pressure on the team warming up because they know they're on display. They're trying to get in their head beforehand. And the flip side is the team in the field is wanting to make sure that they look as good as possible to intimidate this team in the dugout, right? You want them to think there's no way they're going to get a hit on us anytime. We are smooth. We're crisp. It's this weird dynamic. It's sort of unspoken in baseball, but it happens. And coaches emphasize it. Coaches always want to have a clean infield outfield. Uh, and this intimidation uh, factor reared its ugly head for me in high school. Uh, I played for Shadow Mountain High School here in Phoenix, and we were playing one of our rivals, Cactus Shadows, in baseball. And uh, Cactus Shadows was visiting. We were the home team. So they took infield outfield first and then went back into the dugout. And it was our turn now. And before we even took the field, I was already running through my head how good I needed to look, right? How, how much I needed to impress and intimidate them. So I've got my white jersey on. My socks are rolled up. I look smooth. Because Jerry Rice said, if you look good, you play good. I believe in the greatest. Uh, and, and so we all take the field, right? Everyone to their position. And I was a first baseman. Now, first base is unique in infield outfield because they're often the last person to take their warm-ups because every other infielder has to throw over to first base. And so it comes down to me. Everyone else on the team has killed it. They've looked great. And it's my turn. And I have two jobs as a first baseman. <laughs> the first job is to field a hard-hit ground ball to me, whip around, and throw to second base as if somebody's running to second. The second play is a slow-rolling ground ball in the infield as if somebody laid down a bunt. I have to pick that ball up and throw home. So I have both of these jobs, these two things. And keep in mind, Cactus Shadows is on the first base side. They are feet away from me. I am running their voices in my head for these warm-ups. And so the first thing comes my way, and I'm smooth. I'm boom, boom, whip to second, easy. And so now it's like, man, I'm home free. This is a slow-rolling ground ball. I've done this thousands of times. 
but I'm still thinking I need to make sure that I look good. And so I'm sprinting to the infield and all of a sudden I fall and I have no idea what happens. My face smacks into the ground, my hat falls off and I'm coming to my white jersey is now stained with a little bit of the wet grass and I'm looking around like what happened and I, I see my shoelace is a little bit bigger than it should be. It's like expanded as if something got caught in it. And I realized as I was sprinting, I was so focused on making sure I was running uh, as fast as I could to intimidate this other team that my cleat got stuck, stuck in my shoelace and I fell on my face. And I will never live this story down. It's a funny story and anyone that's played high school baseball with me uh, will, will never let me live it down. But I think there's a, a really good truth at the heart of it that I've realized. Uh, when we make the approval of people around us, of, of everyone around us, our primary goal in life will always fall flat on our faces. It will always happen. When we make the opinion of others our primary goal, it ruins us. We're in the middle of a series right now called How to Wreck Your Life, which is a really inviting title, right? Like all of us want to know how to wreck our lives, right? <laughs> Um, and, and we're going through different cultural narratives that we buy into. And these narratives have existed for much of human history, uh, but, but we're looking at them specifically for us in 2019. Uh, and these narratives prioritize one thing over all things, right? And so uh, last week, for instance, Gail Parker preached on the idea of success, right? And, and we wanna keep in mind that success itself is not bad. None of these things that we're talking about each Sunday morning are intrinsically bad, but when we make them the number one thing, when we make them the priority, we ruin our lives. And so today, we're gonna to be looking at, at uh, when we make the priority of other people our main goal in life, how does it ruin us? And so I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna jump into the scriptures because they have great things to say. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone in this room. Each of us have specific stories from our weeks, from our months, from our years, from our lives that have brought us to this room this morning. And so I pray that in each of those stories uh, that you would speak, that your word uh, would come through, through this, this book that we've cherished for so many years, that it would be alive, that your spirit would move in the stories and hearts of everyone here, and that we would leave this room empowered to love and spread your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in, uh, in the Bibles, if you want to get your, your apps open or your Bibles open, we're going to be in, in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, which is in the Old Testament, near the beginning of the Bible. Uh, we'll be in chapter 13, and I'm reading from verses 2 through 14. So once again, that's 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verses 2 through 14. Feel free to follow along with me. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gebeah at Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. And Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout all the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news, Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks, in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of, the Gad, of Gad and Gilead. <clears throat> 
Now Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. And he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, well, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you, and if you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we're jumping into this story here in the Old Testament and Medius rests or in the middle of. And so I want to make sure that we take a couple steps back just to kind of show what has led up to this narrative that we're reading this morning. Uh, just a few chapters before this, the nation of Israel has gone to Samuel, who's a prophet of God. He's one who speaks to God. And they've, they've demanded of Samuel that they get a king, like all the other nations around them. They want to adopt the cultural leadership style. And this is unique because to this point, God has been the one who appoints their leaders or leads them directly. It's been the voice of God that they followed in their leadership. And so for them, to choose a king is for them to intentionally uh, neglect God's leadership and reject it and choose a man to lead them instead. And so Samuel brings this approach to God, and God says, well, this is going to be destructive for them. This is not going to be good, but I want to give them the choice. I want to give them the ability to choose. And so he says, you can anoint a king. And so Samuel anoints a man named Saul. And Saul, by every cultural definition, is exactly the right man for the job. He's a man's man in the way that we talk about masculinity much of the time, uh, as culture defines masculinity. He's tall, he's strong, he's smart, he's handsome. He is the Brad Pitt of kings. <laughs> and if ever there was a man that should lead based on worldly standards, it's Saul. And it, it goes well to start for him. In the chapters leading up to 13, he has a couple militaristic victories. He leads Israel against some of their enemies. Uh, and the good news keeps rolling into this chapter. Uh, he's established a standing army, which is uh, the first in Israel's history. And then in verse 3, we learn that Jonathan has attacked a Philistine outpost successfully, or a Philistine garrison, it may, it may say in your translation. Uh, and, and it's interesting that it, it mentions that specifically. Uh, and afterward, it mentions that the Philistines had to hear about it. And so it should make us think, well, well, why, if they're being attacked, would the Philistines have to hear about something, right? If I get punched in the face, I don't need somebody next to me to tell me, hey, you just got punched in the face. Like, I don't need to hear about it from somebody else, right? That tells us that this victory was not particularly huge or noteworthy. And the word for outpost here is, is likely meaning a, a, a flagship or a marker of the Philistine Empire, but it's not a central uh, defeat of the Philistine Empire that's happening here. And in spite of the smallness, Saul makes sure to take the credit for Jonathan's victory. Did you notice that? Right away, we get foreshadowing into Saul's character. In verse 4, he announces that Saul defeated the Philistine outpost, right? Not Jonathan. And so right away, we get this clue that he's insecure about his public perception, that he needs the approval of people around him. He's longing for that approval. 
And to be fair, on his part, it's some good social media work, right? I'm the king, here's the reality, I put a filter on it, this is my kingdom, it makes me look better. But it reeks of insecurity. And where there's insecure smoke, a fire is likely not far off. So then we get the Philistine response, right? In verse 5, the Philistines rise up. And we're told that they bring thousands of men and chariots and horses and weapons. They're rallying here. And what's unique about that is that most commentators have, have looked at the location here, and, and scholars and, and archaeologists have found this to be true. This location of Michmash and, and Gilgal was likely in the, the hill country. Uh, it's rocky. It's mountainous. Chariots make no sense in this location. It's completely impractical to bring chariots out here. So this is a show of force from the Philistines. It's like they, they haven't gotten punched in the face, but they've realized an ant bit their foot, right? And they're itching it, and they're like, you know what? It's time to get rid of these ants, right? That's what it's like for the Philistines. And so they rally thousands of men. It's like those, uh, those videos, if you've seen them in history or present day, of dictators when they have their like, military marches to show off their strength, right? They get tanks, they get missiles, they get men, they have music playing. It's a massive show of their strength. And so in this sense, Jonathan's attack has actually stirred up a hornet's nest, and the, the Israelites are being surrounded. And the response for the Israelites, well, it's, it's sort of like that scene in Forrest Gump where he runs away, right? He's just running down the road. That's the Israelite response. Everyone runs away. And it's actually kind of humorous in the text the way that it describes it, because it, it mentions specifically all the places that they're hiding, right? It's in rocks. In, in the ESV, it says in tombs, which is kind of darkly humorous. The word in, in, can be translated pits as well. It's the same word that's used to describe when Joseph gets thrown into, a, into the pit by his brothers. It's a place where people are left for dead. And it's, it's kind of funny because these, these guys are running away, right? They see the Philistines, and they get to a tomb or a pit. And they look in, and they're kind of like, well, I mean, I'm dead anyway, so I might as well, right? I might as well step in. That's, that's what's going on here. They're, they're resigning themselves to defeat. Some of them flee across the Jordan River. And this is funny because just a few chapters before this, they demanded the king that they, they wanted, and he's here with them now. This king, who they have clamored for, is here, and it's not enough. It's not enough to give them strength to defeat their enemies. See, humanity can't be entrusted to cure the woes of humanity. Only God can do that. And so we move on to Saul's response. Now he's standing mostly alone. His men have scattered. We already know he's insecure, so what's he got to be thinking now, right? And he's faced with a choice. Uh, implicitly, uh, it doesn't tell us explicitly in this chapter, but Samuel has told Saul to wait at Gilgal, and in seven days he'll arrive, Samuel, and he'll, he'll perform an offering, a sacrifice to God, and they'll be able to follow the voice of God from here, and God will deliver them, right? This is who God has been for all of Israel's history. He's been the liberator. He's been the deliverer for them from their enemies, right? So all you've got to do is wait seven days on the voice of the Lord. So that's one option for Saul. He can continue to wait, or he can attempt to take matters into his own hands, right? And so he's battling back and forth over these seven days, and he gets to the seventh day, and he's probably hoping that Samuel arrives right at the break of dawn so he can take the pressure off of himself. He's like, he's here, finally. But he starts to wait into the seventh day, and Samuel's not quite getting there, and he's getting antsy. And Saul's heart is shown to us in his response. He stands 
against the God who has delivered time and again for Israel, and he chooses not to trust him. And he actually breaks sacrificial law and rushes the religious task instead. Only priests and prophets could, could sacrifice to the Lord in Israelite law. And so for him to do this, it's directly going counter to what God's law has told him. And so I think it's important for us to look at Saul's motivation here. See, he's, he's watched his men flee, run away from him. He's seen his kingly leadership questioned. Just chapters before this, his kingly leadership was lifted up, and now he sees it start to fall apart. And so he has this longing to regain that support, that feeling of approval from the people around him. And I want to be clear, the longing for approval and acceptance is not necessarily wrong. To have that longing in our hearts is not intrinsically bad. It's the places that we go to earn that approval that trip us up. So the choice runs deeper than a religious do or don't for Saul here. Saul's choice is to seek the voice of his people for his primary approval or seek the voice of God for his primary approval and support. And his choice here shows us his heart. He desires to be approved by the people on his terms rather than responding to God's terms. He is consumed with keeping up appearances rather than waiting for God's appearance. And there's two main appearances, I think, that, that Saul is attempting to keep up here. The first appearance is the appearance of holiness, right? He does this sacrifice to appear as if he's following God so that his men can look at him and think, oh, well, he's sacrificing to God. God might be there. Let's, let's move back, right? He's using this religious task as a means to build up support for himself. And do you see the hypocritical irony here. He's actively choosing not to trust the word of God by pretending like he's trusting God. He's prioritizing external piety, the way other people view him, over actual relationship with the Lord. How twisted his religion has made him. But don't we often do the same thing? I mean, be honest, how often do we sit in these chairs and think about how others see us with our hands raised or sitting down? How often do we obsess over our word choice when we pray before meals, especially in front of our grandparents or elders? How often do we talk about our service or sacrifice for the sake of appearing a certain way to others? How often do we talk about our knowledge of the Bible as if it elevates us some way in God's sight? When we behave religiously for the sake of looking good to others, rather than for the sake of relationship with God, it's like spraying Febreze on a corpse. We're attempting to cover death with the appearance of life. And all of our religion, all of our holy huddles and high fives are meaningless and destructive if they're focused on building up a shining image of ourselves to other people. Don't force false piety. It will destroy you. So that's the first appearance that Saul is attempting to maintain here, an appearance of holiness. The second appearance is an appearance of self-sufficiency. Now remember who Saul is here. He's strong, he's capable, he's motivational. By all worldly standards, he can get things done, and he has gotten things done to this point. But that actually prevents him from waiting for God. He is set on showing everyone that his own leadership capability, his own skill set, his own aims and goals are enough for success. And so he says, sure, we'll get this religious task out of the way. 
Let's get God done so that we can move on to our agenda, so that we can move on to our strength, our response. He wants to prove that he has the power to lead on his terms, that he's in charge. Not Samuel, not God, but Saul. And do you see what this attempts to do to God? It takes his immense power and contains it for our specific usage. It's like putting God into a spray bottle and spraying him around whenever we feel like he could help us clean the counter or dust off uh, the living room. It contains and compartmentalizes the infinite, powerful, loving God and attempts to govern him with our agenda. And this temptation is all over our world today. The temptation to make it about our way, to use God for our way, it's everywhere in our lives. There was a study done recently of, of funeral directors uh, around the United States, really interesting study, and they were asked, what song is the most requested song that people request for, to be played at their funerals? What song is the number one song that people in America request? And the song that they reported from this study was My Way by Frank Sinatra. The more extended title of that song, the more extended chorus is, I did it my way. The number one thing that people in America wanted to be remembered for on their last day, their last party, was that they did things their way. That's what our culture tells us. That's what Saul buys into here. He wants to show that following him, following his way, will work. And we crave the same thing all the time. We crave validation in our way, to be seen as people who have things figured out, to be put together and have answers for our lives. And so we post and we share and we project self-sufficient lives free of weakness so that we can receive support from people to reinforce our way. We feed ourselves on the likes and loves and follows. When people ask us what we do for work, right, we often have a script that we recite that sells ourselves best. We, we talk about those things in order that their opinion might be the best for us. For many of us, the most pervasive drug is nothing illegal. The most pervasive drug is praise. We've become addicted to adoration. And in doing so, we've overthrown the true king and crowned ourselves. And I want to be clear here that this is not me standing up here talking to you about the things that you do. I face this temptation all the time. If any of you are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 3. I'm an achiever. I love when I can, I can show that I've done things well, when I have tangible markers that prove to people that I get things done. And so I can often build my life like an armor of self-sufficiency. I use a large vocabulary to show you that I'm well-learned and have a master's degree. I obsess over being a winner. I make sure the grass in my yard looks just right so that you know I care for how my home looks. I make sure to dress well for any social occasion, buttoning the top button every time. <laughs> but when we think about it, what's the narrative underneath this? The, the reality is, if all of us are trying to do this, if all of us are grasping at it, that means none of us actually have it. None of us have the approval that we're looking for from the appearance of other people, and so we keep striving and striving. We're all lying. 
We're trying to obtain this perfect worldly approval that's just constantly out of our grasp. It's like chasing wind. And so we build up these contrived card castles of self-sufficiency, and eventually we learn that cards can't stand for very long. And it's interesting, much of our sociological research actually backs this up. Uh, it's, it's more than just a narrative that we get in scripture. Uh, there was a, a man uh, who's a publicist in, in the early 20th century. His name was Edward Bernays, and he's known uh, as the, the father of public relations. Uh, he's someone who studied immensely the, the voice of the people and what people articulated and knew how to communicate to them on their level. And he says this about the voice of the people, the approval of people. He said, no serious sociologist any longer believes that the voice of the people expresses any specially wise and lofty idea. The voice of the people expresses the mind of the people, and that mind is made up for it by the group leaders in whom it believes and by those persons who understand the manipulation of public opinion. He's telling us here that the voice of the people is not solid. The voice of the people is constantly changing, and what the people said 50 years ago is different than what they say now, and it will be different than what they say in 50 years. The voice of the people cannot sustain us. It is constantly being changed and affected by people who wish to maintain, maintain power in the world. This voice can never be obtained because it's constantly shifting and moving. It's like attempting to stand in quicksand. And it should make us think, if we all do this, we should, we should question ourselves, where do we go from here? Like, if we're all doing this and we're never finding it, what do we then do with our misplaced longings? These longings for approval. Where do we find true approval? And there's a man named Jesus who tells us a story that guides us. In, in the Gospel of Luke, he's, he's speaking to a few people that are particularly confident in their own piety and sufficiency. The scripture actually tells us these people feel good about themselves. And so he tells a story. He reveals two men in this story, both who are approaching the temple to pray. One of them is a Pharisee. The Pharisees at this time were the most holy people. They knew more of scripture. Well, they had it memorized. They had the first five books memorized. That's something that none of us in this room have. They were the most pious, and everyone knew it. And then he introduces us to a tax collector who's approaching the temple to pray. And tax collectors were scumbags. They were the most hated people in this culture. He, he clearly has two ends of the spectrum that he's articulating in this story. Listen to the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I have. Listen to the response of the tax collector. The scripture tells us he wouldn't even look up to heaven, and he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee is concerned with the voice of the people, with his own image. He wants to show that he has things figured out, that his way is working, and it will get him there. And Saul is the Pharisee. He refuses to admit his misplaced longing for approval. And rather than repenting of his fault and acknowledging that he sought the wrong voice, he actually doubles down in the passage. In verses 11 and 12, he gives excuses for why he's done what he's done. 
He says, well, the people, people scattered, and you were later than I expected, even though Samuel still showed up on the seventh day. You were still later than I expected. It wasn't on my terms. And the Philistines are rising up. He's trying to show that he's justified in seeking the voice of the people. He's trying to show that his pursuit was the right thing to do. And in doing so, he's refusing to turn back to God and his failures. Even when he is caught in them, he is consumed by his own image expressed through the voice of the people. And Jesus says that it's the tax collector that will be justified before God. For he understands his brokenness and repents. He's not only saying that, he's saying that God actually welcomes us back when we turn back and he exalts us. He elevates us. He lifts us up when we turn back to him and gives us the approval that we've been seeking the whole time. It's as if we've been going toward this cliff that we can't see is going to result in our death. We're seeking the wrong approval facing this way, and God is calling out and saying, that approval that you're seeking, it's over here. Turn back to me. Let me give you the approval that you're longing for. See, the voice of the people isn't the only voice. There's another voice. It's the voice that forms the entire universe and formed the hairs on your head. This voice is compassionate and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. It is faithful and just to forgive our turning away from him for insufficient admiration. It cried and died on a cross so that our empty pursuits of the approval of others could die along with it. And it rose again so that we could be eternally approved instead. This voice names us beloved, cherished, holy, blameless, son, daughter, child. Only God can fulfill an approval that's unfillable by the world. Only God can fulfill an approval that's unfillable by the world. So will we continue in our Saul syndrome? choosing to prioritize the fleeting and failing voice of the people for the building up of our own image? Or will we be humble enough to change the course of our chase and admit where we have wrongly chosen? Because Jesus desires to give us abundant life. He said it himself, his own words. That's why he came. He desires to give us the approval that our hearts are longing for. He knows our craving. He knows what it's like to be tempted towards the wrong voice. And so he's reaching out with open arms, like a father waiting for an embrace. And so the eternally resounding question rings through our ears this morning. What voice will we choose to listen to? Would you pray with me?